Welcome to Shelving Cart. I'm Sarah. And I'm Teddy. And we're both librarians here to have a podcast book club with us and all of you. On Shelving Cart, we talk about books like it's a one-hour book club meeting. So we talk about likes, dislikes, reviews, general feelings, and more. And we also generally completely spoil the book, so be warned. This week, we are discussing The Princess Bride, which, similarly to The Hunger Games, is a very successful movie. Um, In this case, if you have seen the movie, it's probably okay to listen about the book because they're very similar. Let's just freaking get right into it. I have a question for you first, which is, it's been now two weeks since we recorded our episode about The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. Did you finish the series? Uh, I have a book club at work, so I have to read that book too. So I had to read that book after our last meeting. So then I read Catching Fire and I started it literally two days ago and finished it yesterday. So um, I read Catching Fire and then I'm going to do Mockingjay and then I have a copy of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes and I'm going to be reading that. So Teddy, did you keep reading it? It's done. I finished it. Including Ballad? No Ballad. No Ballad. Okay, so I read Mockingjay and Catching Fire, not in that order. (laughs) And um, the good news is, is that they hold up just as well, if not better, than The Hunger Games did. Um, I don't know if you agree, but I loved it. Catching Fire was incredible. That was a quick five stars for me on Goodreads. Oh, yeah. I can't lie. Absolutely. Hunger Games, I was like, this is good. But not like everything I remembered. But Catching Fire, whew, I, I could not stop reading that that book. Incredible. Okay, that was my warm-up question for you. I just wanted to know if you had read the rest. I will be completing Mockingjay soon. We'll get there. We'll get there. Great. Okay, so I have some background on... William Goldman, who is the author of The Princess Bride. Um, So we'll get into this later, but the actual title of this book is The Princess Bride, colon, S. Morgenstern's classic tale of true love and high adventure abridged by William Goldman. Um, So let's just move on. William (laughs) Goldman, we'll come back. William Goldman was a real guy. There's a real William Goldman. Um, And he was born in a Jewish family in Chicago in 1931 and graduated from Oberlin College in 1952. He took a creative writing course there, but he says his grades were horrible, which I think is hilarious. Um, And despite the fact that he was an editor of the college's literary magazine, he says that the other editors, he says that the other editors read his anonymous submissions and said, we can't possibly publish this shit. <laughs> so he was not a very successful uh, writer in college. And then he was drafted for the Korean War. But because he could type, which was a rare skill in these days, he was assigned as a clerk in the Pentagon. So that's what he was doing the, during the Korean War. And then thanks to the GI Bill, uh, Goldman got his master of arts from Columbia studying the comedy of manners in America, which I think you can very clearly see in The Princess Bride. Uh, 
And then, so he has an older brother, James Goldman, who was a playwright and screenwriter. So William Goldman lived with his brother, James, and a friend, John Cantor, who also went to Oberlin. So you might know John Cantor as a composer for some very famous musicals, including Cabaret and Chicago. Wow. Insane. Um, eventually, all three of them, William, James, and John, would go on to win Academy Awards for their work. Bonk. So he's like living in his own little yeah. salon, you know. We got another. Um, we got another screenwriter on our hands, just like, just like our girl Suzanne. Absolutely. Which leads me into my next point, which is that we talked last time about how prolific Suzanne Collins was. Um, and now it's time to talk about Billy Goldman, because just from a quick scan of his Wikipedia, he wrote 17 novels, one children's book, five short stories, and eight works of nonfiction, if you don't count the books that assemble his screenplays. Um, he is a credited producer on 24 films, including The Princess Bride, of course, which he wrote, but also Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Stepford Wives, among others. So he's like writing, producing, doing the whole spiel. He like wrote a lot of movies. Um, I have an inside uh, connect at Tish, by which I mean one of my colleagues at the uh public library that I work at went to Tisch um, for film. And she said that William Goldman uh, was the script doctor for Goodwill Hunting, which won Matt Damon and Ben Affleck the Oscar for best screenplay. Uh, so he might also be behind that. That's funny, but you know, not to, not to just like uh, spoil my feelings on the princess bride as a whole entity, but the princess bride is probably my favorite movie of all time. And probably my second favorite movie of all time is goodwill hunting. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Yep. Wild. The princess bride, the novel was originally published in 1973. So we should honor it with its full title. The Princess Bride, S. Morgenstern's classic tale of true love and high adventure, the good parts version, abridged by William Goldman. So the book's actual beginnings were in stories that William Goldman told to his daughters. He thankfully does not have a son. We'll come back to this later. That was a ridiculous part of this book. Um, if I were like a real son of real William Goldman reading this, I would never speak to my father again. Um, the book was adapted into a movie and William Goldman did write the screenplay, as we discussed. Um, the film was directed by Rob Reiner and starred Robin Wright, Love of My Life, and Carrie... Elwes. Elwes. Thank you, Sarah. Um, there was going to be a musical. Did you know this? Oh, my God. No. That would <laughs> there be... was going to be a musical. Like, they were going to do, like, Robin Hood, Men in Tights vibe. The whole oh. spiel. But Goldman had a falling out over royalties with his partner, Adam Gutel. Um, Goldman wanted 75% of royalties despite not touching the score at all. Um, an orchestral, an orchestral suite from the score was performed at the Hollywood Bowl in 2006, and then the project went under. So those industrious researchers in us, like in our crowd, if you want to find footage of the Hollywood Bowl in 2006, you will hear part of the score. Um... So with that, that's my William Goldman background. Sarah, thoughts, questions? I also just want to note that I love Rob Reiner <laughs> in um, Sleepless in Seattle, in specifically in that movie. Just, just he's just amazing. He has this great line with Tom Hanks where he's like, 
tells Tom Hanks he has a, a nice butt, but he doesn't know if it's cute or not. It's great. It's great. Anyway, that's just my my insert. Rob Reiner, chef's kiss. <laughs> great. Okay. So now we're going to do a little bit of um, library book ASMR in that the plastic cover on my book is going to crinkle. <laughs> okay, wait. Okay, wait. I'm going to step yeah. away from my mic. Do it as close to your mic as possible. Okay. Did it crinkle at all? Yeah, 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 it did. Great. So that's some public library shellac for all of us. Um, I hate these book covers so much they give me textural problems, but I fight through it anyway because I'm a good civic servant um, and I support my local library. Um, So now I'm going to read the book jacket um, for a princess, the princess bride. Um, here we go. A tale of true love and high adventure, pirates, princesses, giants, miracles, fencing, and a frightening assortment of wild beasts. The Princess Bride is a modern storytelling classic. As Florin and Gilder teeter on the verge of war, the reluctant Princess Buttercup is devastated by the loss of her true love, kidnapped by a mercenary and his henchmen, rescued by a pirate, forced to marry Prince Humperdinck, and rescued once again by the very crew who absconded with her in the first place. I'm going to do an insert here, which is that that's sloppy writing. It sounds like Wesley was forced to marry Prince Humperdinck, but we're (laughs) moving on. Um, In the course of this dazzling adventure, she'll meet Vizzini, the criminal philosopher who will do anything for a bag of gold, Fezzik, the gentle giant, Inigo, Inigo, Inigo? Inigo. Inigo, thank you. Uh, in case anyone was wondering, I am not as much of a fan of the movie as Sarah is. I've only seen it like three times as opposed to Lord knows how many, Sarah. Fezzik the Gentle Giant, Inigo the Spaniard who still thirsts for revenge, and Count Rugen, the evil mastermind behind it all. Foiling all their plans and jumping into their stories is Wesley, Princess Buttercup's one true love and very good friend of a very dangerous pirate. Excellent stuff. Um... Okay, so a lot of the reviews on my edition of this book are fucking boring because I read the 30th edition Mm. of this book, which I believe you also did, Sarah. They're all like the New York Times, Newsweek, Los Angeles Times. But I do want to highlight only one review because who gives a shit about what the New York Times thinks? I, you know, whatever. That's kind of a joke, but also they're kind of shit these days. I know, it's it's not even really a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so there is one review on the back of this book that goes like this though later in life he was perhaps more guarded concerning the human condition there can be no doubt that in this stage of his career especially with the princess bride morgenstern was the most joyous of all florinese writers (laughs) that comes to us from heinrich pavel the author of middle morgenstern which doesn't fucking exist (laughs) Dear Jesus Christ. Um, Yeah. So we'll leave that where that is for now and come back to that uh, whole narrative frame issue later. But Sarah, did you find any good Goodreads reviews for this? I certainly did. So I went right onto Goodreads and I I filtered by oldest. So I, I did get to 2007 which was like the first year somebody could have a Goodreads review on Goodreads. Um, uh, a lot of them, like, it was kind of hard to find funny ones because a lot of them was just, like, <laughs> I think the book is better. I think the movie is better. I think the book is better. I think the movie is better. However, I have a couple that I want to highlight. 
in 2007 from Ganesh. We got a five a five star review, and he said, "Funnier and more sexist than the movie." Five stars. So true. So true. Five stars. Five stars. <laughs> um, <laughs> just made me giggle because it's funnier than and more sexist than the movie. Five stars. Like the sexism. <laughs> is what makes it five didn't, stars yeah it didn't deserve a detraction for the sexism at all I think yeah the sexism the re it's like because it's the way that the more sexist means that it's five stars like the movie's four stars because there's not enough sexism in it right yeah absolutely. absolutely but it's also true that this movie that this book is funnier than the movie and more sexist than the movie i i don't Ooh. i don't know i mean listen i don't know if it's more it's funnier than the movie or oh my not God. I, because the movie is like the source material for me, so it's hard to say. Andrea in 2007 added this to her want to read, so it's not a review, but this is what she added when she put it in her want to read. Can't wait to read this book. I love the movie, and not just because we got to see Carrie Elwes without his shirt on, dot, dot, dot. Fab. Fair. 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 Okay, Patricia in 2007 gave it four stars and said, The story is beautiful and the writing is humorous. My only problem is that it also follows the traditional traditional damsel in distress plot that has gotten so old. Princess Buttercup is a very weak female character, but I don't know yet whether the author is using her to make a statement about the roles of women in fairy tales. I feel like it's pretty obvious. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair... A lot of the satire in this book comes across as incredibly earnest. Um, but that being said, it's all commentary, baby. Top to bottom, yeah. all the way down. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. But those are the ones that I found. I feel like they summed it up. I think now we should just get right into it. Let's do it up. I thought it would be good. Obviously, I've given myself away here. But to explain any background you may have with this book slash movie. Go ahead, Ted. Great. So this is my first time reading The Princess Bride. Um, and it was a mind fuck for sure. Um, I have seen the movie numerous times. It's a feel-good classic. Very sweet. Um, I love the practical effects in that movie. Shout out to Rodents of Unusual Size. Yep. I love you all. You're my best friends. <laughs> Um, I've never met a practical effect I love more than you. Um, but yeah, I gotta say the obsession with it is not my ball game. It's not my arena. I don't super get it, but it feels like you do. Well, I think it's pretty much all nostalgia based for me. I mean, I also think that the movie is funny and it has all those parts in it, but basically, um, this was like the VHS, like of the like pile of VHSs we had as a kid that I was always an early riser. So like literally five-year-old me would go downstairs and like pop in the princess bride into the VHS player. And I would watch it over and over and over again, even though I was really afraid of the fire swamp. Like that was, <laughs> I would do it over and over again. So I loved it. And I thought it was my whole family, but I remember talking about it with my sister and she was like, I've never seen that movie all the way through. <gasps> oh like, you know, and my parents were like, I don't know the last time I watched that movie all the way through. I think it was literally like me, like as a little tot going downstairs and like just playing, pressing play and watching it like over and over again. I was obsessed with it. It like colors a lot of my childhood. Um, so 
love that movie. I think it's amazing. I when I read the book, I hear Mandy Patinkin delivering Inigo Montoya's lines. Like it's in my head. I can hear Andre the Giant. I can hear everybody doing it. I can hear Robin Wright. I can hear it Carrie Elwes and then I'm forgetting the name of the guy who plays Vizzini and he's really famous too, but I can hear him too. Um so it's like I hear it, I love it. And then with the book, what I ha- what I remember is I went to the library which is like a half a mile down the street from where I grew up and I would walk there or bike there. And I think I was maybe 10 or 11. And I was like, wait, the princess bride is a book. And I got it out from the library, which was the first book I ever got from the adult section of the library. This is so special. I feel like we should like throw a celebration or something. Yes. So I think at the time, because it's like uh, at the time it was the 25th anniversary edition was out. So I got it. And you know what? Let me just say, this book tricked me. This book <laughs> tricked the hell out of me. I thought that there was an S. Morgenstern. I thought there was a non-abridged version, which I really wanted to read. I thought that Buttercup's Baby was going to be a real sequel. I thought, ev- I was like, I I need this. Like, I got the book out and I was like, I don't, this isn't the right one. Like, I need it. I remember looking and being like, well, I knew that... Uh, because I would listen to audiobooks a lot as a kid. Like, I knew that you had abridged or not abridged, and abridged was the full, not the full story. So I was like, well, I need the non-abridged version, and I kept not being able to find it at the library. <laughs> so This is so sad. Did you tell a librarian I don't what think you were so, trying to but do? But I think I went home and, like, looked it up and then was, like, on some early version of Wikipedia or something and was like, oh, I was duped. That's so sad. So I think it was just like the nature of gullible little me, but it was the first adult book I ever checked out from the library. I loved it because I loved the movie. It like brought joy. So yeah, I missed, I was 10 or 11. So I missed some of the stuff that I was like, "Uh oh, this ain't so good. (laughs) Yeah, there's some of that in there. But when you're 10 or 11, you know, water off a duck's back. Yeah, you know, sure. Yeah, Yeah. and I am honestly reading it now. I'm proud of little me who like, powered through some of the boring stuff in the book like definitely like the movie has it all for me and I think it has it's missing some of the like downfalls like the pitfalls of the book um with like the modern viewer in mind you know um so but the book I think has like a little special place in my heart because yeah it was the first adult book I ever checked out it tricked the hell out of me I got duped by the book um so yeah That really rolls perfectly into the next point that I am dying to make. Dear listeners, the way that I have listed this in the outline of our notes is what the fuck is going on with all of these introductions, colon, Ted takes on the 30th anniversary edition of The Princess Bride and gets confused about the boundaries of reality. If you have not read the 30th edition of The Princess Bride, you should know that there are three introductions, two of which I think are real (laughs) and one of which is part of the story so i did not like this i can tell you right now i was familiar with the narrative frame of the princess bride movie wherein grandpa or dad potentially grandpa it's grandpa grandpa, yes is reading the story to a sick child and i was like okay fred Fred savage specifically fred thank you thanks thanks sarah (laughs) (laughs) um beautiful But I did not realize that that was going to be like part of the book. 
And so I got fucking confused. So the 30th anniversary edition was published by Harcourt in 2007. It has a stupid amount of introductions, as I already said. Um, It has one introduction for the 30th anniversary edition. And then they also included the one that they wrote for the 20th, 25th anniversary edition. Why? Already starting me off pissed off. And then there's the mock introduction to the like abridged book. And I am not ashamed to admit that I Googled if S. Morgenstern was real or not. I did that. I super did. I had not yet caught on to the fact that like, I didn't understand that Florin was like not a city in Italy. Like I was like, oh, he didn't make up a country. He did make up a country. Um, He made up two. (laughs) Yeah, he did. He did. He made up two. Florin and Gilder. Great. So in case you don't already know this, S. Morgenstern, not a real guy. Despite pulling directly from Goldman's life, including details like the book's publisher, which again, Harcourt, Goldman's film career, like working on The Stepford Wives, and the name of his wife, Helen, (laughs) the actual, uh, poor fucking Helen, the actual introduction to the book is a fictional, fictional frame story that sets up the original Princess Bride as a rare novel by Florinian, Florinian author S. Morgenstern. So Florin is a fictional country, which is your tip off pretty much that this is like not real. Um, narrator slash adapter William Goldman is different than author William Goldman, who lives in our real plane of existence, or he died in 2018, but he lived in our real plane of existence, despite the fact that real Goldman did adapt The Princess Bride presumably the good parts, into a movie. Isn't that so fun? I am going to say that this, as a cataloger, I feel that I can say this, is a cataloger's worst nightmare. Because in case you don't know this, under RDA cataloging rules, you are supposed to type what you see. So the title of this book really would have to say Abridged by William Goldman, but then you would have to put in the 100 field, which is where you put the author, William Goldman, or would you put S. Morgenstern? Unclear to me. I did not look at the bib record in my local library. I think I cataloged it when I was a baby cataloger. So actually, it's not a reliable source anyway. Whatever. So Goldman, in a sense, the real one, was a fucking prankster, and I felt tricked. Um, <laughs> later in the book, there's this big reunion scene between Buttercup and Wesley. We'll get there. And Goldman claims in one of his little asides, uh, like his little footnotes that aren't really footnotes, uh, that he wrote a big reunion scene that wasn't actually featured in the book because S. Morgenstern skipped it. But fake William Goldman's publisher would not let him put it in. And instead, readers can write to Harcourt publishers and request a copy of the gold, fake Goldman insert scene that he wrote for the S. Morgenstern text. So I get this from Wikipedia. I'm like loving it, reading it. Real people wrote actually to Harcourt and they did receive a letter. But instead of an extra scene, the letter detailed the obviously fictitious legal problems that Goldman and his publishers encountered with the Morgenstern estate and its lawyer, Kermit Shog. Um, The letter was revised and updated periodically. The 1987 revision mentioned the movie, while the 25th anniversary edition 
published the letter with an addendum about Kermit Shogg's lawyer granddaughter, Carly. <laughs> the 30th anniversary edition, which is the one that I read, does include a footnote that the three pages of the reunion scene were now available online. Um, but the website contained nothing but the text of the original three letters. I did try to use the website and then found out that it has since been taken down and has been superseded by the Houghton Mifflin Harcourt product page for the book, which provides the 2003 version of the reunion scene letter as a digital download. I did try just like typing the website in and it was like, this doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, the 25th anniversary edition's epilogue mentions a sequel, Buttercup's Baby, which the epilogue says was having trouble getting published because of legal difficulties with S. Morgenstern's estate. Later editions, like the one we read, include a fake sample chapter about rescuing Buttercup's baby, but also includes flashbacks to Inigo's past and training as a swordsman, which I feel like we got enough of in the original book, but yeah. that's just me. Um, the chapter also contains footnotes in which fake Goldman is outraged to learn that the rights for the abridgment of Buttercup's baby were given to Stephen King. I lifted that little bit of text from Wikipedia, but actually it's more than footnotes. There's like a whole introduction to this yep. like fake chapter of Buttercup's Baby where he like goes to Bangor, Maine and like fights Stephen King. <laughs> um, Goldman was actually trying to write the sequel. This part's really sad. Um, he admitted in a 2007 interview that he was like really trying to write it, but he kept getting writer's block. And then in 2018, he died and never got to write it. And he died of pneumonia, which in the frame, he gets a Princess Bride read to him as a kid because he has pneumonia. Sad. And, and then he writes the script for the movie in the book when he has pneumonia and is sick again and in the hospital. And then he actually died of pneumonia. Prophetic. Well, Sad. Pneumonia and colon cancer, but, you know. Pneumonia. Just pneumonia. That's sad. Yeah. That's sad. It is sad. But he did write a romp for us all, didn't he? He super did. Before he left, he left us with a gem. Um, yeah. So that's my introduction to like actually being tricked. I need like my confession to actually hit. I Googled <laughs> as a 26-year-old adult if, F if S. Morgenstern was a real guy. I, you know, listen... <laughs> makes me feel better about 11 year old me doing the same thing i just like i really it it's was the, it's the joy it's the beauty of it you know it's just too many introductions i got lost you know i think i it's like i feel i feel like he really set out on a quest to do like 20th century trolling and it worked like, imagine the people who were reading it in 1974 no google probably bothering the hell out of librarians being like can you get the real one where's the real one if you were a librarian in 1974 and you're listening to this podcast write in with tales of woe from your patrons trying to find the unabridged princess bride they're gonna be like they're gonna be like no one's as dumb as you two it's so true <laughs> that's what really happened <laughs> <laughs> okay, should we run through the cast of characters for yes. this book? Yes. Great. Yes, yes, indeed. Okay. Do you want to start off? I can go off the dome. Okay. On it. Let's let's hear it. So we got we start off with Princess Buttercup, who starts off as a milkmaid, who 
at the time when she's like 15, 16, is in the top 20th most beautiful woman alive, but she just never takes a shower. Um, I will say that this comes with a gracious acknowledgement that that's something that changes regularly. There's like an ever-shifting list of the most beautiful women in the world. Um, there is no gracious acknowledgement, however, that that is um, not a measurable statistic. <laughs> um, and then uh, with Buttercup on her farm are her parents who argue a lot. And then we also get Wesley, a.k.a. Farm Boy, who just does whatever the people want him to do on the farm. He also loves to read. King. Wesley's great. We got Buttercup. We got Wesley. Right. So that's how we start off. And then we meet we meet Count Rugen and Countess Rugen. Um, Count Rugen also has six fingers on one of his hands. Mm. Mm. Countess Rugen is apparently very fashionable. <laughs> That's all I know about her. Um, okay, great. And we also learn about somebody named the Dread Pirate Roberts, who perhaps killed Wesley? Question mark. Um, uh, then we also meet Prince Humperdinck. <laughs> Sociopath. Which, which, like, I feel like he was, like, the character origins for Lord Farquaad. Oh, my God. Shrek. So true. Well, with a name like Humperdinck, too. Like, there's something in there with Farquaad. Yeah, I think so. Like, it's they, they just are, like, in the same s- slot in my brain. And then we also get our real stars of the show, IMO, the Zini, a.k.a. the Sicilian, uh, Inigo Montoya, a Spanish fencing master wizard. Teddy, do you have anything to I add? I have so many things to add. First of all, for the Zini, I just want to pull this one line. Uh, the Zini put together what is called the Sicilian crowd, which makes up... Vizzini, Fizzik, and Inigo. Um, And it's called the Sicilian crowd because two is a company, but three is a crowd. (laughs) (laughs) And then then we have a Turkish wrestler, Fezzik. My notes for Fezzik are that he is a big, bumbly hunk of a giant man who I love very dearly and who knows, knows his own strengths. The literal and metaphorical definition being the same in this case. Um, Also, Fezzik does this very cute thing where he likes to make rhymes and he drools sometimes. That's all. (laughs) I love his rhymes. I love his rhymes. I do really feel like the part where William Goldman in the intro was like, I wrote Fezzik for Andre the Giant. I kind of feel like that's true. Um to be honest because Andre the Giant like if you read over his Wikipedia page his favorite thing ever was working on the Princess Bride because he felt like it was like the first time people kind of treated him normally Mm. yeah Andre okay well let's talk about let's talk about our man the myth the legend you killed my father prepare (laughs) to die my name is Inigo Montoya you killed my father prepare to die okay Inigo is a sweet, sweet angel baby man who is played in the movie by hot, young, sexy as fuck, Mandy Patinkin. Get it, daddy? Absolutely, Mandy Patinkin. Um, I love, I love. Oh my God. Also, I'm going to say, if you know me in real life, you know exactly what I'm about to say. Did you know that Mandy Patinkin speaks Yiddish? Oh my God. <laughs> um, so not only is he the love of my life for playing Inigo Montoya, but he also is the love of my life as a human man 
for speaking Yiddish. Also, I'm in love with his wife. I just want to be adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the book, Inigo is just a little lad, a sweet wee lad who wants to avenge his father's death at all costs. I, I love him. I love him. Some um, other key characters that we meet are some fun characters, I should say. Not necessarily super key. Well, we meet, um, there's the albino who works in the zoo of death. Mm-hmm. Um, how he got that job, don't know. Um, there is the guy who's like the captain of Prince Humperdinck's like, guard. Um, Yellen. Yellen. He puts together the brute squad. Also um, the albino's cousin. The albino's cousin. So probably how he got the job, actually. <laughs> um, and then we also get uh, Miracle Max and Valerie. Miracle Max, played by the love of my life, Billy Crystal, in the movie. <laughs> Reading the book, I was like, I can just hear Billy Crystal in my head. Um one of the great things also about like William Goldman, the real one, not the fake one, writing the movie is that a lot of the dialogue is completely unchanged. And so when you are reading the book, you not only like can superimpose an actor's voice onto it, you don't even have to try. You can just like replay the movie in your head and it still works. To blave, to blave, to bluff. <laughs> <laughs> He's bluffing. <laughs> I love Billy Crystal. Speaking about freaking daddy. Anyway, um, (laughs) (laughs) so yeah, I mean, I feel like, I feel like I got everybody. Did I miss anybody? What's on your list? No, you got everyone on my list. Everyone important. Okay. Oh, oh wait. No, you didn't. Fake William Goldman is a character in this book. And so we should, right. So my notes for that character is that he is a dickwad who hates his son for being fat. Um, did not love that. Um, He is a lover of the Princess Bride, the original, but only because his father skipped to the good bits and as a lover of action, but not a lover of lengthy political satires, he decides to rewrite it abridged for his son. And he is the author of the narrative frame introduction and the intermittent italic text interruptions explaining abridgment choices, which can sometimes be funny. Sometimes they're just sort of annoying. Yeah, sometimes they're annoying. Sometimes you're like, all right, buddy. All right, Billy, get out of here, please. I'm done. I'm just, I'm just trying to enjoy the story. Get me back to Buttercup. I do know that young Sarah was tickled by all of them like I Mm. really enjoyed that aspect and I remember when I was picking up the book to read it I was like I'm excited to revisit that and I was like something should stay in your childhood absolutely I mean we all have books that got us in to fictional footnotes like for me it was the Bartimaeus trilogy did you ever read that about like the little demon and his boy are those the ones with the gins in it why yes gins and imps Oh my god, yes. I, I would be like reading those and I'd be like, damn it, another footnote. And then I'd enjoy the footnote and then I'd be like, oh, another one. Like, I'm just trying to get through this book. <laughs> That's kind of actually how I feel about footnotes yeah. in general. Valid. Valid. So, Sarah, we have yes. gone over the narrative frame. We have gone over our cast of characters. Would you care to share a plot overview with us yes to cite my sources i I took the wikipedia plot overview and then edited it you know an abridgment love it an abridged an abridged outline so our actual non-framework story opens on buttercup who as i mentioned is in the top 20th most beautiful women alive and is a milkmaid in the country of florence on her farm she has parents who argue and a farmhand hand named wesley who answers all of her questions with the phrase as you wish (laughs) 
she, she I want one. <laughs> I know. If he wanted to, he would. Anyway, she realizes she's in love with him when she gets jealous because she is a woman and jealousy is a main trait of women. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Um Wesley leaves to go to America to make money so she can he so he can marry Buttercup later. Later, Buttercup's parents tell her Wesley has been killed by the dread pirate Roberts. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. So then we meet Prince Humperdinck, um, the Prince of Florin, who needs a wife and he cannot marry a bald woman from Gilder because women are only valued for their looks. Remember that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So his creepy BFF, the Count Rugen, helps him by bringing him to Buttercup, where they agree to have a loveless marriage. Before the wedding, Buttercup is out riding when she gets in parentheses, inconceivably kidnapped by a trio of outlaws, Vecini, the Sicilian, Inigo Montoya, and uh, a Turkish wrestler, Fezzik. But, inconceivably, they are followed by a masked man in black. He follows them up the cliffs of insanity and battles Inigo and wins. Then he battles Fezzik and wins. And then he successfully defeats Vecini, which is, may I note, inconceivable, but yet still happens via Iocane powder. Teddy? Beautiful. No, I have nothing to add. That's I just am loving all these inconceivables. <laughs> Buttercup and the man in black continue running while they argue. The man in black slaps her, yikes, and he pushes him down a hill where he yells, as you wish, and then we realize it's actually Wesley the whole time as the man in black. Buttercup descends the very steep hill after him because she realizes it's the love of her life and they reunite but we don't get to see it it's off screen because s morgan stern never wrote that part (laughs) um but it turns out wesley didn't really die he became the dread pirate roberts because apparently the dread pirates roberts is a intergenerational passing of the torch situation where somebody gets tapped to become the next dread pirate roberts and this is where we get my favorite line of the book well, one of my favorites. This is like a top key yeah. moment where the old Dread Pirate Roberts goes, I am not the Dread Pirate Roberts. My name is Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> and then, good night, Wesley. I'll kill you in the morning. Yeah. Likely. Oh, my God. Most yes. like I'll kill you in the morning. Very cute. But Wesley and Buttercup are being hotly pursued by Prince Humperdinck. So they rush into the fire swamp. Buttercup falls into snow sand, which is different than uh, quicksand because snow sand kind of like suffocates you. Um, Apparently that's what was made in the book. Yeah. This is the Um, part. I did not like the snow sand because there was some discussion about how if Buttercup opened her eyes, it would get under her eyelids. And I got very texturally freaked out by that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough. Um, they deal with rodents of unusual sizes. <laughs> Size. Ooh, sorry, <laughs> sizes. <laughs> sizes. <laughs> and come out alive on the other end, luckily, only to be met by the Prince Humperdinck. Buttercup swaps herself um, in order to save Wesley, but Humperdinck and Rugen are lying to her about that. They are actually going to take Wesley to the zoo of death and torture him. So here is also one of like the most devastating lines of the Princess Bride, where she's giving him up and, you know, saving his life by agreeing to like go with Humperdinck. And... It goes like this. The truth, said Wesley, is that you would rather live with your prince than die with your love. He's like kind of buying it for a second. And she says, I would rather live than die. I admit it. And he says, we were talking of love, madam. There was a long pause. 
Then Buttercup said it. I can live without love. Boom. Yep. Sad. Sad, yeah. sad, sad. She had to for the past couple years. Oh my god. Buttercup. I know. Buttercup and Humperdink are gonna get married, um, but she keeps having nightmares about her scary babies and all of this stuff and it's a lot and she realizes she can't make can't marry the prince so she tells the dink himself and he promises to send <laughs> send for his four fastest ships to get wesley and send him a note but remember wesley is not on his pirate ship he's getting tortured so humper dink is lying he's actually planning to kill buttercup because he wants to start a war with gilder because he was actually the one who hired um the uh, Sicilian crowd uh, to kidnap Buttercup. So, fast forward to the day of the wedding, and we cut to our wait, friends. Wait, wait, yes, we have to go back. Okay, Vizini dies, but Inigo and Fezic are still alive. Inigo goes back to the thieves' quarter to get drunk, right? And yep. Fezic, he knows that there was a rhyme that Inigo made up about where they should meet if they get separated, but he can't remember it. And so he eventually finds his way into the thieves' quarter by, like, being on the guard. The, br- the brute squad. The brute squad. So it's the day of the wedding. Cut to our friends, Inigo and Fezic, who were separated after their defeats by the man in black, a.k.a. Wesley, a.k.a. the Dread Pirate Roberts. <laughs> so Fezic finds Inigo, sobers him up. And they quest to find the man in black, a.k.a. Wesley. Yes, Teddy. This is where I fell in love with Fezzik. Like, before I was like, oh, cute. And then I was like, oh, my God. When they reunite, because Inigo sort of recognizes Fezzik and goes, Fezzik? And then Fezzik says, who says it? <laughs> and then Inigo says, Sezik? Is that a joke you made? And Fezzik says, played. And then Inigo goes, Fezzik, it's you. And Fezzik says, true. <laughs> like, screaming, crying, throwing up. Literally so sweet. Like, I love Fezzik I, so much. I love them. I love them. So they have to quest to find the man in black, a.k.a. Wesley, because Fezzik has found the six-finger man, Count Rugen, um, which, backstory, quick moment, uh, Count Rugen killed Inigo's dad, and Inigo has now sworn revenge upon him. As a side note. And he trained to be the best fencer in the world for that reason. But they need to find the man in black to help them plan because Vizzini is a fucking asshole who told them that they were too stupid to make up plans by themselves, which is not true. Um, But Vizzini gave them low self-esteem to kind of keep them in the crowd with him. Um, So they hear Wesley screaming from his torture in the machine by Count Rugen, who's very creepy. So they find him after traveling through all the levels of the Zoo of Death, which is also creepy and not in the movie. So this is probably one of the biggest movie book changes is the like we see uh, uh, Wesley in the pit of despair in the movie. But there's actually five levels of the Zoo of Death, which end in the pit of despair, which is where Wesley is. There's a lot of creepy crawlies. Let's just say that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they find him in the zoo of death and, and then they end up having to bring him to the miracle man, Max, miracle Max and his wife, Valerie and <laughs> Max and Valerie help bring him back from being quote, mostly dead. Okay. Max and Valerie. I know. First of all, the scene in the movie, incredible. The scene in the books, even more incredible. One might say, 
There is a running joke throughout the book that S. Morgenstern hated doctors, that like he thinks doctors are jokes. Um, And there's this footnote in the Max and Valerie scene where fake Goldman says, my point is, if Max and Valerie sound Jewish, (laughs) why shouldn't they? And this is so true. It is like true Yiddish slapstick comedy, like all the way through and through down to like the nagging wife, like all of it is like perfectly set up. I've got to feed my witch. Right. Literally, right. I've got to feed my witch. Exactly. So then fake Goldman says, you think a guy named Simon Morgenstern was Irish Catholic? Which is like beautiful, lends a whole new layer to like the S. Morgenstern thing. Like he's not just Floridian, he's Jewish Floridian, right? Funny thing, Morgenstern's folks were named Max and Valerie, and his father was a doctor. Life imitating art, art imitating life. I love that so much. <laughs> a good insert by Billy. <laughs> a good insert by Billy. Yes. Um, okay, so this next paragraph is pretty much almost exactly word for word lifted from Wikipedia, so citing my source on Wikipedia here. So... Wesley devises a plan to invade the castle during the wedding, and the commotion caused by this prompts Humperdinck to cut the wedding short. Buttercup decides to commit suicide when she reaches the honeymoon suite. Inigo pursues Rugen through the castle and kills him in a sword fight. Wesley reaches Buttercup before she commits suicide and drops the most baller line of all time. There's a shortage of perfect breasts in this world. It would be a pity to damage yours. Gross. I know. (laughs) I know. He's like laying on the bed, all posted up, just says that shit. I want to give some ode to Inigo's um, murder of Count Rugen really quick, which is just that this is also an incredibly baller line. Um, He has him like on his knees, like begging, like it's a whole thing. And he says, Inigo says, offer me anything I want. And Rugen says, yes, like anything, say it. And Inigo goes, I want Domingo Montoya, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Incredible. Yep. Fab. It's iconic. Yeah. It's iconic. Um, in the, I just, I love that whole scene where he just keeps repeating it over and over again as he gains his power back. Beautiful. Oh, so good. Um, so, still partially paralyzed, Wesley bluffs his way out of a sword fight with Humperdinck, who shows himself as a coward. And, and instead of killing his rival, Wesley decides to leave him alive. And then the party then rides off into the sunset on four of the prince's purebred white horses, which, by the way, who figured out to get the horses under the window? It was our man, Fezzik. Okay? He did that. Okay? Vizzini, you can go fuck yourself. Azza plan. Uh, Gorgeous. (laughs) Yes. Um, The story ends with a series of mishaps and the prince's men closing in, but the author indicates that he believes that the group got away. Which, in Buttercup's Baby, we do know that they got away. In the movie, they live, like, it's, like, happy ever after situation. Mm-hmm. Which does take, like, a little bit away from the the satire of it all. Mm-hmm. But that is the story of The Princess Bride. Well, the story within The Princess Bride. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. The main story within the fake framework of William Goldman, the author, and then William Goldman, the fake author, and S. Morgenstern, and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Gorge. Um... <laughs> I have like one, I, okay, just so you know, my notes for this start with a lot of anger about the introductions, then a lot of stuff about like the characters. And then I wrote a heading that said thoughts, 
just like, do you have any thoughts? My only thought that I have in there, there's just one, is that, so Wesley, when he's getting through the torture by like turning his brain off, going away in his mind and thinking of Buttercup, my only thought was like, would this not induce a Pavlovian response to like hating Buttercup? Like when you think of someone while you're being tortured, like generally you hate that thing. Um, and he doesn't, he loves her still. Yeah, he's going to the, a nice part in his brain. So I've been talking a lot. So did you like it? And if you ended up liking it, what what did you like about it? I liked it. I wasn't like, oh my God, amazing. Like, to be honest with you, this is going to be one of those rare moments. I'm going to say something sacrilegious. I think the movie did it better. And I just, right. Like, I had a good time. I, the characters were the strong point of it for me. Like I was really in love with like most of them, but the problem was that I like loved the side characters more than I loved Wesley and Buttercup. I think there was like this lasting question of like half Buttercup a personality <laughs> that like wasn't a very interesting question for me. Um, as we've discussed, like satire wise, it's like not really, and it's on purpose, but it's still kind of annoying. Um, that's my take on it anyway. I don't know if you have other thoughts. Um, I do personally also think the movie is better, but I will note I'm not a, um, unbiased source on that situation. (laughs) Um, because I just think I just really loved the movie and I saw that first, but I do think we get more time with Inigo and Fezzik in the movie. So we get more of that joy. And I think that that on screen really shines like the Wesley Buttercup stuff is supposed to be like sickeningly sweet, which in the book gets tiresome because there's more focus on it. Like it's supposed to be kind of like this disgusting, like like sweet candy of a love story um, in this like very dramatic satire. So yeah, um, I, I think so. I really don't like, did not enjoy the intros and having to get through those intros. I skipped some. I skip some. It's it's tough. Like the intros had in one paragraph, I literally texted Teddy and was like, "Woof, this is not so good." <laughs> Yikes! And um, while I was texting Teddy, I was like, "Oh wow, this is super fat phobic. <laughs> like super like this fake William Goldman like making fun of his son for being fat and all this stuff." The number and- of times he used the word "waddled" was genuinely yeah. upsetting it was it was alarming and i also it was on that same page there was also some racism right in there and then um there was also like a little sprinkle of homophobia in the next paragraph right after we get into the fat phobia where he was like helen you're making him into a puff and i was like oh my god like i mean it's 50 years later right Okay, we're not, I'm not taking away from that, but I will say, like, I'm not saying in 1972, I think everything has to be up to a certain standard, but I am saying that as a modern reader, it's hard to get through that. Valid. Absolutely. But I liked it. I enjoy it. It's fun, but I think it has a huge nostalgia factor Mm -hmm. for me. Like, I gave it four stars on Goodreads because, and primarily for the nostalgia factor and the dialogue. I think the dialogue is some of the best parts of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Um, 
Who was your favorite character? Um, I go back and forth between Fezzik and Inigo <laughs> constantly on it, but I think we get like a little bit more time with Fezzik. Um, and I just love him and I think it's really sad. Um, his backstory with his parents is like really alarming. Oh, it's um, so fucked up. Do you want to give like a brief overview of what it is? Yeah, it's it's his parents realize he's huge. He gets bullied a ton at school, everything, and then his parents end up being like, "Oh, we can make money off of our huge child," and like ab- financially abuse the shit out of him, physically abuse him by way of like putting him into these things where he gets bullied. Both of his parents die. He doesn't know what to do. It's like, it's pretty miserable. And so I feel very sad. So obviously he already has low self-esteem. And then he meets Vizzini, who's just basically replicating his parents' relationship. And it just sucks. Like, I, and he is just like, I feel like a big sweetie. Um, We have the same favorite character. I just yeah. like, there's no contest. Like, everyone else is like... I don't know. Fezzik is the only one for me that like read as like a truly like fleshed out, lovable human being. Yeah. Um, Inigo came really close, but like this all consuming quest thing, like while it was beautiful and at times inspiring and funny and sad, like also is like a very intense trope. And so it's hard to get under there and like love him that much. But I did, like, my favorite friendship of the book was obviously Inigo and Fezzix. Like, they yes. were gems together. I love them so much and how much they take care of each other. That scene where they're going through the zoo of death and each of their strengths saves them at one point or another was incredibly potent and beautiful. And, like, yes. I, for context, like, did not know about the zoo of death And, like, in the movie, right, the machine is just sort of, like, in the pit of despair, but the pit of despair is, like, in the fire swamp. And, like, there's a lot of, like, cutting out that happens. It's, like, under a tree, right? Yeah, it's not, it's not in the fire swamp, but it's under, it's under a tree. Okay. Yeah. They, they like, they run into um, uh, the albino keeper and he, he they like knock, they show him where it is and they knock it out. Whereas in the book, the albino keeper, like, he lies to them about the actual correct entrance because you remember the whole aside that was like the real entrance is this but the real entrance is this they have like a fake entrance at the top which you have to go through all the levels of the zoo of death which no one survives um or they have the entrance that goes directly to the level that wesley is in but they cut out all of the zoo of death stuff, which i guess because they were using only practical effects in the movie (laughs) I, I got it. They yeah, cut out, cut out the snake and they cut out the spider. On the, the spider doorknob. on the doorknob though was so cute. It was like this teeny tiny thing is like the most deadly spider per square inch or something. It was like, but yeah. Anyway, I just like loved that scene with them. So I think that they're if if a friendship can be my favorite character, Inigo and Fezzik's friendship is my favorite character. Yes, I absolutely, absolutely, I agree. Um, do you think? that the princess bride is satire because I was doing some light research and it looked like Goldman was claiming at some points that it was not supposed to be a satire. Those claims must be satirical. This thing is like full blown satire. There's just nothing about it. That isn't. He, he said 
it was like one quote where he was like, well, I was just making a story for my kids. Yeah, but he's a cynical dude. You know, like I think like even if maybe I would go so far as to say that I could potentially believe that he thinks it isn't satire, but that doesn't make it so. I know. And you know what I think? What I think in particular, I was like put, putting myself back. It's 1972, right? What could he be satirizing, right? But beyond just like fantasy stories as a trope, but I, and like love stories. But I was thinking back and I was like, oh, it's making me think he's making poking fun at the Lord of the Rings a little mm. bit. Um, and like this idea of like black and white, good or mm-hmm. bad. Um, cause the Lord of the Rings, there's obviously, I'm not saying anything bad about the, the Lord of the Rings, but the big thing, one of the biggest themes is like, there is good, there is definite good and definite bad in it. There are some great characters, like literally Gandalf. I think William Golvin was pulling a lot from that of like, and there's definite good. We have like the guys who are like literally torturing people. And then we have like princess buttercup and wesley and they're supposed to be like this amazing love story and then he just like plops these characters like right in the middle who are you know like show like the the breadth of like why somebody could end up being doing the quote-unquote bad thing but not actually not actually being bad like our boys fezzik and amigo that's beautiful (laughs) right and then there's vizzini who is actually just like a dick. So like there's the whole yeah. like right, there's the whole spectrum. I think that's a good point. Um I also think right, like if you go back to his Columbia, he literally wrote his master's thesis on the comedy of manners. Like this is a man who knows his source material. He knows what he yeah. quoteth. Like I think that this is undoubtedly satire even if it started as a story for his children. I also um my hottest take, I think, though, is that the Buttercup stuff isn't always satirical. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, say more. It lands in this weird spot for me where I think that Buttercup is supposed to be satirical, but some of the stuff related to her is like too... I don't know how to necessarily explain it, but it is sexist, <laughs> you know? Yes. And it, some of it doesn't seem to be sexism with a purpose. It's like making fun of women for being women as opposed to like making fun of the things that we put women into, like the boxes that women are put into a little bit, I think. Right. I think the strongest way to satirize like the trope of like the maiden in distress thing would have been to at least once give Buttercup a moment of having a personality. Which... To be fair, he does. I have a Ooh, okay. Hit me. It goes up. It goes up. It's inconsistent for me. Like, I don't think it's bad all the way, and I don't think it's good all of the way. Mm -hmm. I think the beginning part, it's, like, really tough with Buttercup, where it's more like, you know, she she realizes the Countess is in love with Wesley. Oh, wait. Or, like, the Countess thinks Wesley's handsome. Wait a minute. I'm in love with Wesley. Right. And it's like, what is that making fun? It's like, is it making fun of that as an idea, or is it making fun of, like how he sees women as being construed, you know? Right. You know what I mean? It's hard to parse that out. I feel like everything else is obvious except for that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he Buttercup, because then there's also the, all these jokes about Buttercup being dumb mm. in the fire swamp where I'm like, what is this making fun of? It felt more like punching down as opposed to up. Yep. But however, Buttercup on page 247 
fucking roasts the shit out of Prince Humperdinck, <laughs> which is when he goes and like does the lever on um on Wesley, where Buttercup says this. I think you hunt only to reassure yourself that you are not what you are, the weakest thing to ever walk the earth. He will come for me, and then we will be gone, and you will be helpless for all your hunting, because Wesley and I are joined by the bond of love, and you cannot track that, not with a thousand bloodhounds, and you cannot break it, not with a thousand swords. So, like, I think she she comes out strong, like it turns to Wesley, but at the beginning, she says, I think you only hunt, you hunt only to reassure yourself that you are not what you are. The weakest thing to ever walk the earth, mm. which I think is a pretty good roast of Prince Humperdinck. So absolute roast. I, I will give it to you. I don't know that I'm fully sold on the idea that that gives her a personality. It gives her a little bit. Like, a little bit. Like I said, it's inconsistent. Yeah. Because then she also... The part at the end where she screams, I am the princess! Right. Okay. That's legit. Yeah, yeah, And they move out of the way, and Wesley's like, oh, damn, you have a personality? And she's like... <laughs> she's like, well, I learned something in school all those months. Right. That was legitimate. Yeah. No, I guess that's true. Right. I think... Yeah. It, I wish it had been more consistent and stronger, but I... Yeah. Like, you know... It is what it is. Wes- Wesley gets, like, actual POV time. Mm-hmm. Or not POV, but he gets actual screen time where we see, like, why he's doing the things he's doing. Right. But we never get that with Buttercup. Because presumably, according to fake Goldman, it's all been cut because it's all, like, finishing school bullshit. And yeah. that's the other part where it's, like, reliable narrator. You can twist yourself into loops where it's, like... Does real William Goldman think that fake William Goldman is doing something stupid by cutting out those pages of Buttercup's training or yeah. what? Like, what's going on? You just don't get more of, like, how she gets to that point in time, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I think uh, it gets – it's just, like, the way that Robin Wright played the character. I think you, you don't feel that as much right. as in the book. You feel the silliness of their whole relationship. Right. Because also Buttercup is always giving Wesley a hard time in the movie, too. Right. Which I think is... It's helpful. (laughs) It's helpful. I think it's amped up. Which, to be fair, William Goldman did write the screenplay. Right. So you kind of had to judge him on both at once, almost. I think the love story is definitely, like, the most satirical part of all of it. Yeah. Of just, like, making fun of, like, what is this? They're, like, the first scene where he's, like, she's, like, I love... I've realized that I love you. And Wesley's like, yeah, I've loved you this whole time. And you're like, do these people... Do they know each other? Right. They No, they don't. Which is very much making fun of, I feel like, Romeo and Juliet. Like, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. Okay. I think we can safely say it is a satire. Yes? Yes. Okay. Agreed. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. 50 years later, because it is 2023, and this was published in 1973, wow. so happy 50th year, 50th anniversary to The Princess Bride, by the way, um, do you think that it has stood up to the test of time? What a valid question. Yes. Yeah. I think there are parts of it that I'm like, ooh, you know, but like, I think as a piece of literature, like apolitically, this yeah. is like... A book of books you know what I mean like I truly think that this this thing did something you know yeah like it has a place in the canon for sure yeah I definitely agree I think it is it's like yeah 50 years later the story frame 
like the actual content that's within the story frame not so much politically Mm -hmm. right but like you said apolitically absolutely i think it's it's the fact the light of in light of the satire quality to it is like that's always going to be relevant because people still write those stories i just saw somebody on twitter giving giving like a song of ice and fire it's a hard time because it has too many quote-unquote morally gray characters (laughs) in it we have lost our way as a society that's so fucked up I know, and I think that it made me, I saw it literally this week, and it made me think of The Princess Bride, like, literally making fun of that idea that stories only have to be, like, good or bad. There can't be any middle ground, like, those nuanced characters, whereas the most nuanced characters in the story are our favorite mm-hmm. characters in this story. Um, okay, and just to round out our discussion, what... Were there parts, I know we've touched on, like, the intro parts Mm -hmm. politically, Mm -hmm. but were there things that you disliked about it, either other things you disliked about it, either politically or in a literary way? (laughs) Sometimes I just felt like it dragged, you know, but it wasn't, like, anything I could, like, really put my finger on to be like, ugh, get this over with. It was just sort of like, all right, you know, whatever. But I, I... the other thing, too, is that, like, sometimes there were definitely in-jokes that I was like, nah. Like, the whole intro to Buttercup's Baby that happens in the 30th edition where he, like, goes to Bangor, Maine and fights Stephen King. I was like, what is the joke? What's the joke about Stephen King? Like, I, I'm not sure. I get it. So, like, there were some times that it was like, okay, I get it. You have industry insider knowledge. Like, whatever. That's funny, I guess. But, like, I wasn't loving it yeah he's just doing like inside baseball with Stephen yes King. and there was a lot of like posturing that happened for fake william which is like okay like but can you really fake posture fake you or is it just posturing like i don't know so yeah. i wasn't like thrilled but in general i thought it was like kind of a romp and did have a good time it was just like sometimes i slogged and that's okay i can forgive yeah i think it I think the book has like a little fat on it that could have been trimmed down. <laughs> Which is funny because it's an abridgment, right? Like I know. It does. And I, I think there's just like the transitions between scenes. Like I feel like some of that was just a little. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like it was like when you were in the action of each scene, it was good. But then when it transitioned to like the next part of the next scene, like something about the transitions were a little slow. I definitely agree with that. I think the movie, the reason I agree that the movie is better is because it trims that stuff out of it. Let's play some outro games. The first one isn't a game. Uh, I just want to know what you're reading now. Literally yesterday I finished Catching Fire. <laughs> um, but I'm also listening to the audiobook for A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, um, which is a classic, but I've never read it before. Um, I'm like two hours into the 12 hour audiobook uh, so far. So good. It's just very immersive. What are you reading? Um, I'm doing some rereading right now. I'm in the middle of the last book of the Mad Adam trilogy by Margaret Atwood. This okay. shit slaps. Margaret Atwood has stuff to apologize for, right? But. Also, I stand by it, prophetic, love her, love everything she's ever written, including the poetry, which says a lot about me because I hate poetry. But the if you're in the mood for, we're not going to discuss this on the podcast, but if you're in the mood for like some 
really wild romping critiques of capitalism and uh, also like, I don't know, environmentalist movements, whatever, the whole shebang, gene splicing. There's literally something in there called a snat that is a cross between a rat and a snake. And I want one as a pet slash as a tattoo. I love them so much. Anyway, get into Mad Adam. It is so good. The first book is Oryx and Crake. Get in there. We are playing a game at the end of every episode where we go over where we got our copy of the book to read for the podcast. We are two librarians. We have very strong feelings about where you should be getting your books and why. If you borrow your book from a library, be it public, academic, or otherwise, you get one point. If you buy your book, but you buy it from an indie bookseller, you get half a point. We love indie booksellers. They're great but not as good as a library. If you get your book from a big name box store like Target, Walmart, Barnes and Noble, you don't get a point, but you don't lose a point. If you get your book from fucking Amazon, yes, this includes Audible, you lose two points. Quit it with the Audible, get yourself a Libby account. Sarah, you got your book from a library? Yes, I got it from the Libby app. I downloaded it from Libby and I downloaded it onto my Kindle. What about you, Ted? Yeah, such a great question. I also got my book from the library and I read the one that I bought to replace the one that a dog chewed. (laughs) (laughs) That's satisfying. It is satisfying. So our score going into this was one to one. We both borrowed our book last time too. Uh, So this time we're bumping it up to two to two. The thrill of the game. I know. Why don't you intro the concept of Reader's Advisory? Great. Reader's Advisory is this thing that librarians in theory should all be pretty good at, which is when you say, I read this book and I liked it, what should I read next? Your local librarian should be able to tell you or be able to figure out what you should read next. Um, And so this is a little section where we will give you, our listeners, some reader's advisory, except I'm copping out because if the question is, What should you read if you loved The Princess Bride? I don't think there's a great answer. Like, I think this is like truly maybe an incomparable piece of literature in that it has all these different things. Like, I guess my question would be like, why do you like it? You know, if you're like, oh, I loved the narrative frame and I'm not against reading children's books, I might give you the Bartimaeus sequence. But if you're like, I loved the satire of romance that is done in this like very specific way. It's like, I don't know, Pride and Prejudice. Some some David Sedaris. Like, I don't know. I know. It's it's a really hard one. Would you care to give it a shot? So I don't pretend to be an expert on this. So Teddy's answer is good. Now I'm like, oh, should I have said no books or the same? (laughs) (laughs) But Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones, because it's just a delight. It is a delight. It's a delight with a movie, with a movie that's also a delight that a lot of people have seen the movie and never read the book. It's a children's book, but it is a delightful story. And I think also hits that kind of like little sweet nostalgic spot that The Princess Bride hits too. I think that you have bested me because I do think that Howl's Moving Castle is a good reader's advisory choice for The Princess Bride. You named the nostalgia thing. You named the adventure thing. I think also Howl's Moving Castle has something political to say. 
Yeah. You know, so I think that that is another part of it. Um, And also the lovable side characters. If you were like, oh, my favorite part of The Princess Bride was Fennec, Fezzik, and Inigo, I would have said, oh, great, you're going to love Calcifer. I think that's perfect. Well Uh, done, you. If you like Billy Crystal, boy, do I have a book for you. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. Because Billy Crystal is the voice of Calcifer. In Howl's Moving Castle. Mwah, yeah. Perfect. I love I love that man, Billy. Um, I also like that you had a, a Freudian slip and said Finnick instead of Fessig. Oh, my God. I super did. Oh, my God. <laughs> Leave that in. That's. I'm, I'm gonna... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, okay, great. So next episode, we will be discussing A Darker Shade of Magic by V.E. Schwab. This is interesting to me because I never got into our good friend V.E. Schwab. I'm not on the up and up. So Schwab head. I'm not a Schwab. Ew, is that what they're called? (laughs) I am not a Schwab head. I just made that up. (laughs) V.E. Schwab has a name for her her fans. You heard it here first. If you like V.E. Schwab, you're a Schwab head. No take backsies. (laughs) Um, So we will be reading A Darker Shade of Magic next week. Um, and if you are looking for us on social media, which you absolutely should be, we are at shelving cart on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And our email is shelvingcart at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts, send us your book recommendations. If you thought that our reader's advisory was wonk, let us know. Um, be nice because don't hurt my feelings. Yeah, no, <laughs> we're sensitive, but also hit us up. We want to know. Um, And that's it for this episode. And we'll see you all at the next one. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. (laughs) One, two, three, four. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. With Sarah and Teddy. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. With Sarah and Teddy. Hey. Um. My microphone fell. Please hold. Sarah, cut this from the final. It just went bump. Okay. Okay. Great. Thank you for listening to Shelving Cart. Shelving Cart was created, written, and recorded by Sarah and Teddy, edited by Sarah, and the theme music is by Kate Gardine. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please rate and review us on any of your podcast listening apps. We greatly appreciate it.